G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision Christian Radio. Thank you. Well, great to be here. Um, I always say, if I introduce myself, I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention. That's what I thought I was doing with my life. A baroness by astonishment. You become a baroness being appointed to the House of Lords as the equivalent of your Senate. I wasn't into politics and I was so much not in that world. I was the first baroness I'd ever met. Quite a shock. Wake up in the morning, baroness looking at yourself out of the bathroom mirror and you know, it's quite a thing to adjust to, but I said to God, how do you want me to use the privilege of being in the House of Lords? And the message came very clearly. It's a wonderful place to be a voice for people who don't have a voice or people whose voices are not heard. So that's how I tried to use my role in the House of Lords and how I want to use my role while here in Australia. With Heart, uh, and I'm happy to say we do have a Heart Australasia branch, uh, Dr. Martin Panter is here with me, was one of the founders of Heart Australasia, and in Heart, we try to be with people who are largely off the radar screen of major aid organizations uh, for political reasons. The big boys won't go without permission of a sovereign government. The sovereign government is victimizing a minority in its own borders, doesn't give them permission, so they don't go. So I spend some of my time crossing borders illegally and quite shamelessly to reach the unhelped and the unreached. Many are in war zones or post-conflict zones in great need, so we try to provide both aid, can't provide very much, we're very small, but what we do provide for our local partners who are the real heroes and heroines, they multiply amazingly and to be a voice for them. So I'm here to be a voice for those who don't have a voice in some of these parts of the world you've already mentioned, and also uh, to provide to be a voice for people who in Britain are really suffering, Muslim women who are suffering from the rulings of Sharia law, and so I'm happy to talk about any of these people to be their voice. We'll get to a number of those issues because we don't want them unattended to in a conversation where uh, listeners will be interested to hear some of the developments that are going on in Britain. Uh, let me take you, though, first of all, to the House of Lords. Here in Australia, we have our lower house, the House of Representatives, and we have a Senate, the upper house, a House of Review, in the UK, you have the House of Commons, similar to our House of Representatives, and then the House of Lords, very special. I wonder how you describe that in a nutshell uh, for our understanding of the important role that the House of Lords holds. Yes, certainly. Some people think it's not democratic to have a second chamber, which is not elected but appointed and still has some of the hereditary peers who've been there from over the centuries as hereditary peers. they rationale, the justification for having an appointed second house is to make sure that it fulfills its function as what we call a refining and revising chamber, to try to make sure that law is good law. So there are people who are appointed to the House of Lords who could never stand for election, like the law lords, like former chiefs of defense staff, like former ambassadors, like principals of universities. People who bring a lot of wisdom, experience, expertise, and who really do scrutinize legislation as it's going through Parliament. And that is a very serious role of the House of Lords, to make sure law is good law, and at its most 
serious, it really does scrutinise legislation in great detail, much more detail than can be given in the House of Commons, with much greater expertise than elected representatives who, rightly, democratically represent their own communities, um, but don't necessarily have the knowledge uh, to look at law in great detail. So that's a justification for the House of Lords, and at its best, it serves that role very well. Uh, these days you're on the crossbench. Uh, you did spend 10 years as the Deputy Speaker in the House of Lords. Your appointment came uh, for a, a peerage from former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, and she recognised something in you uh, that would allow your thoughts, your influence uh, to be brought into the House of Lords, which already has a very strong and sound Christian base. Uh, but uh, what sort of influence have you felt over the years you've been allowed by the privilege of uh, being appointed Baroness? Well, just for the record, in case any of your very savvy listeners look up Wikipedia, I was actually a deputy speaker. There's a group of us. It's not quite as grand as the deputy speaker, okay. but also for 20 years. So just to put the record straight, but it's a great privilege. But originally, I was appointed by Margaret Thatcher way back. I'm very old. I'm 81, by the way. Um, I was appointed way back in 1982 to the House of Lords um, because of the battles I fought for academic freedom in a time when academic freedom was very much under threat in the UK in the 1970s with a very heavy infiltration by the hardline Communist Party, far left and further left. And not Labour Party. I used to be a Labour Party supporter once upon a time. But this is the really hardline Communist and Soviet-funded uh, infiltration into higher education in the 1970s. I was head of a Department of Social Sciences, 20 of my academic staff, of 16 of my 20 academic staff were Communist Party or further left. Their definition of higher education was not mine. Mine is freedom to pursue the truth within the canons of academic rigor and as a Christian to stand for love. What was going on in my department but also elsewhere in higher education was academic blackmail, was corruption of the intellectual process and often physical violence. It was rough, tough stuff in the soft underbelly of higher education, social sciences, teacher education, media studies, humanitarian and the other sort of subjects such as the humanities. Um, that was really serious stuff going on there. Students got a very raw deal. And I was so worried about the raw deal the students were getting that I wrote a book about it with two colleagues and called The Rape of Reason. And you don't write and run. So I was going back to face the music quite nervous, but God is wonderful, provides a lifeline. A very famous columnist then writing in the Times um, on the day before Booker's due to be published uh, did a wonderful piece um, saying this is the most important book for the future of democracy he'd read for the last 10 years and he was going to devote his remaining two articles that week to discussing it. So he gave us three articles, which before he'd only ever done for Mozart and Solzhenitsyn. That was God's gift to us. It got the book known, got me known, and I think was why Margaret Thatcher appointed me to the House of Lords to fight for academic freedom. A biblical perspective of life, culture and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. Thank you very much. It's wonderful working with Heart Australasia. The work in Timor-Leste, which of course is your neighbour, focuses on the real problem of childhood malnutrition. Um, it's still nearly 50% of children in Timor-Leste, suffer from malnutrition, some of the really serious kind called stunting, which stunts both physical and intellectual growth and may be irreversible. And there are a number of programs going there to try to help the people of Timor-Leste 
And one of my passionate principles in heart is you don't just go and lecture or talk to people. You work through local people. You enable local people to help their own people. That's the way to do it. And one of the ways which we've been doing that has been a program called Hiram Health in Timor-Leste, where children who were badly malnourished would come and they'd receive the nutritional support and they'd go back to their villages, healthy kids, and adult relative would come and be taught how to grow nutritious food from the ground to the table. It's not an infertile land, but there's a lot of ignorance, a lot of superstition, a lot of cultural obstacles. And so that particular program, the adults who came went back with the knowledge of how to grow healthy food and cook it and enjoy it. They'd share that with the communities. Now there's a significant number of community gardens, community farms, local people teaching local people. And the program that's being organized by um, Heart Australasia is also working with local people, helping to educate them. And in this case, particularly one of the foci is spacing of births. Uh, because at the moment, many women have births year after year after year, and of course they don't have enough breast milk to provide enough food for their children, and they don't know how to give their children really healthy diet. They tend to give them rice water, which doesn't have very much. So there's a lot of work going on there, providing education and support, but with the local people, through the local people, for the local people. Uh, Caroline, we mentioned some of those nations that you're working in. Uh, take us to some of the more tragic cases in nations, places like Nigeria where there's all sorts of uh, challenging issues between uh, those who are Islamic in the north and those who are Christian in the south. Uh, there's also a north and south issue with Sudan and the most recent nation, South Sudan. You visit these places personally and you see what sort of conditions people are suffering under. Well, I very much like you pleased to care about and pray about our Christian brothers and sisters suffering persecution. St. Paul said in his letter to the church at Corinth, when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. Nigeria, you may be aware that in recent months, hundreds of Christians have been killed in northern Nigeria and in central belt plateau state. And when I was there last time, I was in four villages which had been destroyed by the Fulani herdsmen, who traditionally have been reasonably peaceable, but recently have become armed and are attacking Christian villages, doing land grab. I was in four villages which had been destroyed. I stood in the pastor's house where he had been slaughtered. So Nigeria, there is a lot of need for prayer. There's real persecution going on. So please pray for Nigeria. Um, in Sudan, you work there. Uh, last year, we crossed the border. I spent my, quite a bit of my time crossing borders illegally to reach the unreached <laughs> and the unhelped. The Nuba Mountains, now, they're Christians, they're traditional believers, they're Muslims, they're all suffering at the hands of the Islamist regime, which will kill Muslims who don't support its Islamist ideology. We've been told that people have been forced to flee from their um, homes in the valleys and their farms up into mountains with deadly snakes because of constant aerial bombardment from Khartoum. So we arrived, I said I needed to see that to get the evidence Slightly regretted it. We'd taken the bottom of a huge mountain. I'd banged up my knee, falling over a tree at the airport. We climbed for two and a half hours up this steep mountain with boulders and rocks in 40 degrees heat. But it was so important to be there. Uh, we met the people who were suffering up there. People hiding in caves with deadly snakes. I met a girl who'd been bitten by a cobra. She survived. Most don't. Met a man with six children in his family. He built a straw extension to the cave, a bit more room for his family. When one of Khartoum's bombers came over, a shell set fire to the straw around his cave. Five of his 
six children were burnt alive. I met the six, burnt and horribly traumatized. It is real tragedy and needs real prayer. But also, I have huge respect for their dedication for the future. We always ask our local partners, what's your priority? Because we believe not in telling what we're going to do, but asking them the dignity of choice. They said, well, we need everything. We need medicine, we need food, but above all, we need education because children are our future. And just very quickly, this made me feel pretty humble. They take the Kenya curriculum because that's a high-quality curriculum. And they can't have education in schools because Khartoum targets any buildings where people gather, churches, mosques, schools, clinics, markets. So they have to have education outdoors. But exams outdoors is quite a challenge. They have invigilators who come up from Kenya. They fly in. And about a thousand kids gather in one place for their exams. Our lovely partner, Nadra, told us how she had to ask each child to bring a large stone. When they arrived, she said, you know why I asked you to bring a large stone? Because when you hear the bombers coming, who put your exam papers neatly together, who put the large stone on those exam papers, and then you run. You'll hide in those caves. You'll lie flat on the ground. When the bombers have gone, you can return. Your exam papers will not have blown away in the blast or the wind, and you can continue your exams. Exam pressure with a little bit of a difference, but they do as well in those exams as many of their Kenyan countries. A biblical perspective of life, culture, and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. In Heart Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, we always work with local partners. We honour and respect them and enable them to make the difference for their own people. And we're always welcomed with enormous gratitude and appreciation. Um, We do a lot of work in the little Armenian enclave called Nagorno-Karabakh that Stalin stuck in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan tried to carry out ethnic cleansing of the Armenians who lived there. Armenia, the first nation in the world to become Christian in 301, fourth century churches. I was there in the early 90s when Azerbaijan was firing 400 grad missiles a day on the little capital city, low-flying aerial bombardment. It was the most high-intensity conflict of the early 90s, hell on earth. The Armenians hung in there with courage and a lot of miracles. Um, We still go there. We have a partner there with the Rehabilitation Center for People with Disabilities who's turned a bombed-out old building into what's now internationally recognized as a center of excellence. I've been there 85 times. But I'm always just humble. People are so grateful that you go and you speak for them and try and give them a helping hand. When I used to fly in by helicopter in the war days, we couldn't let people know in advance the helicopter would be shot down. But apparently I was told when the plane landed, went round the whole of Karabakh, the Cox has landed. Uh, and uh, <laughs> always receive enormous appreciation. Makes me very humble, though, the dignity, the courage of our brothers and sisters on the front lines of faith and freedom. When you are on the front lines of faith and freedom and in places that are especially dangerous, uh, dangerous and let me take you to Syria, uh, because it's uh, one of those uh, almost unresolvable uh, conflicts that's going on in the world at the moment. And you must gain and glean some significant political perspectives about what's going on, because you've got superpowers uh, taking sides against one another, and you've got a whole lot of groups that are interacting, and it's a mishmash of confusion in Syria. If, we're, if I was asking you for... Uh, your immediate thought about what's happening in the Syrian situation. How do you reflect on that? I've been there several times. 
My last report was Voices from Syria. Before I went the first time, way back in 2016, uh, the government did not want me to go. I had a required phone call with the minister. First of all, he tried to put the frighteners on and said it's really dangerous. And I said, well, minister, earlier this year, I was in the caves of deadly snakes being bombed by Khartoum. It's how I use my role in the House of Lords. So he changed tack and said, you will ruin British foreign policy. I said, Minister, I've no idea what British foreign policy is. It's a pastoral visit. We're getting the invitation of the church leaders, the Grand Mufti. But when I got there, I realized what British foreign policy was. Uh, the people of Syria are absolutely terrified of British foreign policy. May I say, I don't condone the things that President Assad has done, which you can't condone. But we listen also to the voices of the people of Syria. And their real fear now about British foreign policy is forced regime change. British foreign policy is determined to get rid of the present regime. Out there, that's the last thing they want. There's no moderate opposition left. So if they get rid of the present regime, uh, it'll deteriorate into a situation like or worse than Iraq or Libya. And that's the last thing the local people want. So I came back with that message And I got a lot of support. Three former British ambassadors to Syria wrote to the Times newspaper and said forced regime change would be a disaster. Let the people of Syria decide their own future. And that's my bottom line. And when we go, we don't only meet the leadership. We go out into the areas. We meet local people. Uh, We also meet the parliamentarians, but we meet intellectuals. We meet musicians, but we meet farmers. We meet housewives whose husbands have been abducted by ISIS. Up in Aleppo, we were in... Western Aleppo and Eastern Aleppo were still in the hands of the jihadists. Uh, We were entertained very generously uh, with a banquet to which everyone was invited. The Armenian evangelical pastor arranged it. The mullahs, the imams came, the Yazidis came, very, very inclusive. The bombs were falling all the time. The quintet played music while the bombs fell 350 meters from ISIS front line. But it's so important to be there and come back and be their voice. I don't impose my interpretation, but everyone we met in Syria, everyone, from the Grand Mufti, from the church leaders to housewives in Homs to Muslim refugees or displaced people in Turkey are terrified of British foreign policy. So I do challenge British foreign policy on that. What are your thoughts on the behaviour of the big nations involved in the issues that are going on in Syria? Because you've got Donald Trump and, of course, uh, Theresa May. Uh, You've got the French. uh, You've got the Russians. uh, Even the Australians are there in an allied sense uh, in the issues that are going on in Syria. What are your thoughts for the behaviour of big nations around Syria and the challenges that are coming because of that? Deeply, deeply disturbing. Needs a lot of prayer. Um, you mentioned Donald Trump, and of course he uh, was took the lead in the recent missile attacks, supported by Theresa May and the French president, and we were there when that was actually happening. And I believe that was a disaster. We have a letter from the three patriarchs of the main churches in Syria, and I agree with their analysis. They said it was unethical, illegal, and dangerous. It was illegal because... In order to attack another country, and the missiles were an attack on Syria, that country either has to be about to attack your nation, so it wasn't about to attack Britain, America, or France, or a mandate from the UN. There was no such mandate. Also, the attack took place the day before the chemical weapons investigators were due to investigate. It was, I believe, unethical and illegal, but also very dangerous, because subsequently there have been people who've gone to that area where the alleged incident took place, And Robert Fisk, one of our journalists in the UK, writes The Independent, said he found no evidence of chemical weapons at all. 
and or the jihadists have access to chemical weapons as well. It was said in the House of Lords when this was debated, there was no reason why Assad should have used chemical weapons. He was winning on the ground anyway. So there is a real fear that situation is going to get very dangerous up in Idlib in the north. There will be another manipulated alleged chemical weapons attack, and Trump has said next time he'll come in really punitively. And that's just dangerous. The people of Syria prolongs their suffering. What are your thoughts for resolution in Syria? Because while there might be Western nations that are pushing for regime change, they want to move Bashar al-Assad out of that role. Uh, What are your thoughts for what would happen if he was removed? But uh, is there any sort of solution that could be on the horizon uh, that you might be thinking about in British government circles? Well, as I've said, the... From everyone we met in Syria, the real fear of regime change uh, is very widespread and very deep. Uh, Many people who have spoken to us said they used to be fierce opponents of Assad. One from the Christian town of Malula said, I used to be a fierce opponent, now I would die for him. He has now got a lot of support from his own people inside Syria because he's seen as the bulwark against the terrifying atrocities perpetrated by the Islamists, ISIS, Jabhat al-Nusra, etc., So he has a lot of support inside Syria. We ought to let the people of Syria decide their own future. As far as the future is concerned, I have to say, and I've said this in public many times, I think Russia is doing the right thing in Syria. Russia is helping the Syrian army get rid of those terrifying jihadists. And their agenda uh, for Syria, I believe, is a good one. Get rid of the Islamists, get rid of the terrorists and the terror that they um, perpetrate, and then change the constitution, have independent elections, and then allow the people of Syria to rebuild their land. Uh, Caroline, uh, just a a short while remaining for our conversation, but if we're talking about the work that you do, and if we're talking about heart, and you said, we're just a small relief organisation, well, no doubt uh, you're on the way to that being a big relief organisation because you have a wonderful multiple dimensions to what you do. You bring some level of compassion that perhaps others are able to do by way of bringing relief and aid, but you do bring some real heart, H-E-A-R-T, to the work you do with heart. When you visit places like Syria and you're mixing with the leaders there who are looking for the way that you're responding to the needs, you have a wonderful story about one Chaldean Roman Catholic priest. Let us in on his thoughts and questions about the likes of Doubting Thomas. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share the pain and the passion. We were up in western Aleppo when the bombs are coming in from eastern Aleppo all the time. We've been worshipping at an Armenian evangelical church, but the mullahs, the imams, the Yazidis were all there, very inclusive. But after the service, this Chaldean Catholic priest came up and he said, thank you so much for coming. I've been thinking of the story of Doubting Thomas. you remember that Thomas was not there when our Lord appeared to the other disciples. So he said, well, I'm not going to believe unless Jesus appears to me and I put my hands into his wounded hands and side. So Jesus did appear and said, put your hands into my wounded hands and side. Now you believe, go and tell. And this Chaldean Catholic priest said, this is the powerful phrase. He said, thank you for coming. You came to put your hands into the wounds of our suffering. Now you believe, go and tell. I think it's one of the great privileges of heart that we can be alongside people in their suffering. We can't obviously feel the extent of their anguish and their pain, but we can relate to them, as he put it, try to put our hands into the wounds of their suffering 
and then you really do believe and have a passion to go and tell. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.